You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Like it or not, ready or not, Christmas time is here. And again, let's just be honest. I mean, long before today, long before December 1st, Christmas was already starting to creep into our lives. Is that not true? I mean, again, the shopping centers and malls had the lights up weeks ago. And let's just fess up right now. How many of you put up your lights before Thanksgiving? Raise your hand. You know who you are. Put up your lights before Thanksgiving. How many of you did it because it was going to rain the weekend of Thanksgiving? That's why I did it. And again, if you've been to the grocery store, you've been to Starbucks or any coffee house right now, and this is long before today, even weeks ago, as you're getting your coffee, you're buying your groceries, the background music has already been those familiar holiday jingles that we love this time of year. Christmas time is here, and that means, like it or not, ready or not, the holiday rush is upon us. And in the flurry of all the shopping and the wrapping and the decorating and the baking and the, all the other stuff that's set to commence, our lives... Can you feel it? I mean, you can feel it. I mean, I went to Target on Black Friday of all days, not because I was looking to get anything for Black Friday. I had to go to Target, and the minute I got into the parking lot, could you feel it? Our lives are about to get busier, noisier, even more congested than they normally are, and that is saying something. And in the midst of it, more and more, I find, through it all, we find ourselves bombarded at this time of year with lots of competing and mixed messages as to what all this Christmas is all about. For example, I want you to consider a couple of uh, samplings from some recent Christmas advertising campaigns that I'm going to flash on the screen. And in particular, I want you to notice the contrast. I've paired some of them together between what one is saying versus what the other is saying. So let's take a look. Christmas comes but once a year, so straighten up because Santa is near. Is it too, isn't it too late to be good? Be naughty. <laughs> Save Santa the trip. If Christmas isn't found in your heart, then you won't find it under a tree. Unwrap the fields. Here's to peace on earth, or at least at the mall. Keep going. Santa stuffs the stockings, and we get to stuff our faces. That one blew my mind. But then at Christmas, you're supposed to get presents, not extra pounds. Okay. It just isn't Christmas without your family and friends. Santa Claus had the right idea. Visit people only once a year. Oh my gosh, right? Take it slow, guys. Take it slow. A good conscience is a continual Christmas. Giving is better than receiving. Wait for it. Here it comes. You're the reason for the season. You're the reason for the season. If you don't believe, you won't receive. This is crazy. Again, these are just back and forth, conflicting, contrasting messages, and it will not surprise you, I think, to hear that in the midst of all of these conflicting ideas about Christmas, there is a decidedly different message to be found in the pages of the Bible. And over these next few weeks, as the hustle and bustle of the holiday season picks up, we're going to cocoon ourselves in the slower anticipatory rhythms of Advent in order to reflect on this counter-narrative, 
this alternative version, if you will, of the Christmas story. And we're going to be undertaking this journey together through the first three chapters of what is known as the letter to the Hebrews. And right off the bat, if you have it open, this is a letter is unlike most of the other letters we find in the New Testament. To begin with, it's anonymous. We don't know who wrote it exactly. There's also, you'll quickly see, no specific audience or community addressed from the start of this letter. It actually, it takes you a little bit getting into the letter, reading between the lines, that it becomes clear, whoever this writer is, they, he or she is addressing Jewish Christians, specifically Hellenistic Jews. And that means sons and daughters of Abraham, who in addition to following the way of Moses, had also adopted the habits and mindsets of the Greco-Roman world around them. Something else you're going to notice when we start reading in just a second is this letter doesn't begin with any of the customary greetings or prayers that we find in the letter, say, written by Paul or Peter. Instead, this author just dives right into the message he or she has for this community. When we start reading, you're also probably going to scratch your head because as we start reading and as we keep going in the next couple of weeks, there's no overt mention of the kind of things we normally associate with Christmas to be found in this letter. Nonetheless, I hope that you'll see in all the urging and encouraging for this community to hold fast to what they believe in the midst of rival messages around them, we too can recall, rediscover, or perhaps realize for the first time what Christmas really is all about. With that being said, either read in your Bible or follow along on the screen as we hear from Hebrews chapter 1. It reads, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For of to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today, I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Something really cool as you keep those Bibles open is that in the original language, this letter was written, Greek. What modern translators have broken into four verses, the first four verses here, was actually originally a single intricate sentence. One long sentence that from the outset establishes a central driving idea that is going to be continued to be unpacked and considered through the remainder of the letter. And it's not only the message of the letter, but as I hope you're going to understand this morning, it's really the real message of Christmas. So let's get into this a little bit and break this down. The author, right from the outset, starts with, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. This letter begins with a very simple statement, but something that is profound. The recognition that we engage a God who speaks to us. A basic principle of communication dictates any message requires a sender and a receiver. And what this author wants us to understand is we do not look up to the heavens and encounter a detached, 
aloof, or muted God. We are tapped on the shoulder. There's a continual knocking on the door by the God who initiates, who repeatedly reaches out to speak to us. And this is an important reminder because sometimes we perceive God as being distant, being silent. In fact, some of us, maybe some of us in this room, even question whether we've ever heard God speak at all in our lives. And for many of the original recipients of this letter, this was also their point of view. Consider the context of this letter. Consider to whom it was written. All of those who received this letter had grown up as a part of a generation, actually the fourth or fifth generation, in which God was perceived to have been tight-lipped. Since the prophet Malachi had last uttered his message from the Lord, there had been no prophets until John the Baptist arrived. It had been 400 years, four centuries, since the Lord had last spoken through a prophet. Since then, it seemed as though there had been nothing but deafening silence. But was God really silent back then? Is God, as sometimes we feel, silent now? Or is it possible that God said all that God needed to say for the moment? You ever had that experience when you're talking to another person? You ever had that experience when you're having a conversation with someone else and you continue on and the other person doesn't say anything? They stop talking. They don't write back. They don't call back. They don't text back. And if you're like me, you question their silence. And the other person in that moment when you go, well, why are you not saying anything? Maybe responds like this. I've said all I have to say. I have nothing more to add. In other words, what that person's telling you is what I've already said is enough for now. Let's leave it at that. Now, I don't know about you, but I am uncomfortable with silence in conversations. I'm uncomfortable with silence even when the other person says something like that. And so maybe like me, you do what I do. I become tempted, even though the person isn't saying anything, to start talking for the other person. Filling in their part of the conversation. Oh, this must be what you mean to say. Or this must be what you're thinking. Or this must be what you want to say. I start to fill in what I think they would say. Or worse, I start to fill in what I think they should say. Anybody else ever done that? Right? And whenever you do this, this always gets you into trouble. Confusion, not understanding results. And I'm bringing all this up because this is what happened to Israel, okay? God had been speaking. God had spoken. But the people weren't getting the message. But God had all he had to say for now. Uncomfortable, though, with the silence and not content to trust in the word they were given, in the midst of that 400-year period of God saying nothing else, the people, lots of people, claimed to speak for the Lord. They tried to fill in the perceived gaps in what God had already spoken, and thus ended up adding things to the conversation that the Lord never communicated at all. That's why when you arrive onto the pages of the New Testament, you find the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, None of this comes out of the Lord decreed, there shall be Pharisees, there shall be Sadducees. This was people trying to fill in the gaps of what God must have meant or what God intended to say when God had said all he needed to say. And this happens with us. For many of us, you know, we struggle in this same way. And the writer of this letter from the start is trying to get us back on message. Not what we think we hear, not what we want to hear God saying, but the message of what God has actually said. 
by reminding us that God has never had a problem initiating a conversation with us. In fact, the writer says we have a long history of that ongoing conversation at many times and in various ways that we can refer back to whenever we begin to believe God hasn't spoken to us or isn't speaking to us now. And for some of us here who say, I don't know if God's ever spoken to me in my life, what do you make of this? This is God speaking to you. This is God speaking to us. What we really mean is God hasn't spoken to me in the way that I would like. God hasn't spoken to me and said the things that I want God to say. God speaks through his word. God, as we just finished this sermon series, speaks through his spirit, speaks through this community, through, through those who, who look to him and listen to him. But sometimes we forget what God has already said because God isn't speaking right now. Or God isn't speaking when we want him to speak how we want him to speak. But again, this author reminds us not to get caught up in what we're not hearing, but to remember what we've heard. To remember that we have a God who wants to speak to us. That we have a God who reveals himself through his creation, through the sunrise and the sunset through the sun, moon, and stars, the rainbow that comes after a storm. We have a God who spoke to Joseph through his dreams and to Moses through a burning bush. He spoke to the Israelites from fire and smoke on the mountain. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice, to Isaiah through a vision in the temple. The Lord spoke to Hosea through his family circumstances and to Amos through a basket of summer fruit. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah through a potter's clay, and once God even spoke to Balaam through his donkey. Be it in Cana or Egypt or Israel or Babylon, God has been speaking his message through visions and dreams, angels and symbols, natural events and many other means. God has been speaking throughout history in a variety of places through many different means in order to reveal himself to us. We have to start with understanding that we have a God who wants to be known, who wants us to hear him, who wants us to know him, to understand him, to experience his love. And with that, the writer goes on to add, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, that's, this but in the middle of the sentence implies a comparison, a contrast between then and now. And oftentimes when we hear that contrast between then and now, we tend to think in terms of bad and good. But the author here isn't talking about that was bad, but this is good. The author is, in fact, saying that was good. God spoke to us in a variety of ways and in different times and in different places and different means. That was good. But now this is going to be better. This is even better. This is the best having first established this message being brought is in continuity with the ongoing conversation God's been having with his people, the author introduces a new element to God's communication with us. God has spoken to us by his son. But before he gets there, he underscores something really important we can't just gloss over. That God has spoken to us, to us by his son in these last days. The author puts a strong emphasis on what time it is. It is, in other words, near the end. The end is near. The clock is ticking. We are closer to the conclusion of this message than we were at the start of when this word was first given. So if you haven't been paying attention, now is the time for listening and receiving all the Lord has been trying to communicate with us. Everything we know the writer is telling us hinges on what comes next in the conversation. 
Everything we have been meant to understand about God is to be understood in light of what God has just spoken to us by his son. The contrast here, besides this was good and this is better, is that previously God had spoken to us through prophets. That's what the author just told us. God had spoken to us through prophets. And what are prophets? With no disrespect intended. Prophets are middlemen. Prophets are go-betweens. Prophets are liaisons. Prophets are representatives who declare and interpret the word of the Lord for us. But the writer says, but now, now God has addressed us more intimately, more directly, not through a directed messenger, but by means of a direct message delivered to us face to face through God's own son. Now for the original hearers of this letter, so through God's own son, so, how is this? I mean, for us, we immediately go to a certain place. But for those who first heard this, just at this sentence, they would have been like, okay, what does this mean? How is this any different? I mean, the prophets of old were sons of God, were they not? Meaning, weren't they children of God? So, God has spoken to us by his son. But the author wants us to know that there's something totally different in play here. That someone entirely distinct from anyone else who has spoken before is being talked about. And that is indicated by the description of this son that immediately follows. He goes on, this son whom he appointed heir of all things. The son is the appointed heir. And an heir is invested with everything. An heir is invested with everything. Full authority to do and act on behalf of the father. In other words, to interact with the son is to interact with the father. It is to engage with God. And while the prophets of old claimed to speak the word of God, none of them, through their physical presence, not one of them claimed the sort of authority that's being identified here with this son. But this son is not just an heir. It's not just about this son who will inherit everything from God. No, this son, it goes even further than that, deeper than that. This son is credited as being in union with the father in creating all life as we know it. In other words, this son is eternal. Or as the Bible uniquely expresses it elsewhere, this son is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of all things. In other words, this son of God coming to us as a human being is also fully God. And to drive home this mind-blowing revelation, the writer goes further to declare, the son is the radiance of God's glory. The son is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is not like the Shekinah glory of God, and that's the word for radiance being used here. It's the same word for Shekinah glory. Shekinah glory refers to that incredible, luminous, blinding, visible manifestation of the presence of God that the Hebrews saw descend from Mount Sinai as they were newly liberated from Egypt. The Shekinah glory of God is that luminous, visible presence that was just overwhelming, that filled the temple. For the first time when Israel was unified at last as a nation, the writer is saying the sun is the Shekinah glory of God. The sun is the light of the world. The light the darkness cannot contain or snuff out. The sun is the exact representation of his being. And we can stop right there for a second because again, if we still think we're just talking about purely a human sun, here's the thing. No human sun is the exact representation of his father. I have a son, many of you know him, his name is Ethan, and he is blessed or cursed, depending upon your opinion, of looking a lot like me. <laughs> and as much as he looks like me, he is not the exact representation of his father, because he's a lot taller than me, and I'm really upset about that. 
Love your son. No human son is the exact representation of his father. But this author claims this son is because this son is divine. The exact representation of his being, of the being of God. But this isn't just a statement about the son's full divinity. This is pointing to the son's full, exact expression of God's character. And the implications of this are so important because what this tells us is we don't look through the father to know the son. We look through the son to know the father. The son, this son is the lens for us to fully know who God is. So while there may be many access points to find God, there is only one way, only one truth, only one life, one means by which God has reached out and come down to us, and that's through his son. But the writer doesn't even stop there. That would be enough and continues to say, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay, hold on a second. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Again, the only person, the only one who has the ability to create by speaking is God. That's how God creates. You and I, we say lots of things. There's lots of things we say that we don't mean. There's lots of things we say that we don't follow through on. But when God speaks, things happen. Things change. Life happens. God creates by speaking. And the author doesn't hesitate to to associate this same trait with this son. This son, we've already heard, creates. He was part of making the universe and all that is in it. But this son also, by just by speaking, wields the power to sustain all things. That means to preserve all things, to heal all things, to reconcile all things. And we might ask, how does the son possibly accomplish this? How does the son sustain life eternally before even death itself, which we know well? And the writer goes on, after he had provided purification for sins. How does the son sustain all life beyond death itself? By cleaning up our mess. Not just yours or mine, but all of it. All of it. Repairing the breach. Healing the brokenness. Righting every wrong that results from our rebellion against God. Our rejection of each other. Our addiction to self. This son cleans up everything. The specifics of how this works, the specifics of how this son cleans up everything is going to be addressed later in this letter. But what matters, what changes everything is that through this son, the author wants us to understand we move and have our being. Through this son, we find forgiveness. We find salvation. We find full and abundant life. And the writer ends this section by just going on and saying, as a result, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. This son was with us for a time, a season to accomplish all this, but now we are told this son is back where he belongs, at the right hand of God. And that's the position of power and authority as the head over all things, of all creation and all life. And then he goes on to conclude by saying, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. There are two Old Testament passages being quoted here. That's why you see the quotes by this writer. And in their original context, if you were to go back to them, these are verses that are coming from Psalms that talk about the enthronement of the king of Israel. 
Interestingly, in fact, one of the Old Testament Psalms being quoted here is the very same one used in the prologue to John's Gospel, chapter 1, John's Gospel, which we frequently read at Christmas time. The writer is making these references to the Old Testament, to these specific Psalms about the enthronement of the King of Israel in order to communicate and express the conviction that this son is the ultimate son of David. This is the true King of Israel. This son is the long-awaited Messiah. And again, this is significant because back then, and let's be honest, still today, there are lots of would-be Messiahs that often assume this title, that frequently claim the ability to do the job, to have all the answers, to be able to set things right, and always claiming to have been sent by God. Then and now, we've always ended up being disappointed or worse, dangerously led astray. And what this writer of this letter wants us to understand is this son is different, not like all the rest. This son is the real deal. This is not another messenger. This is more than an angel. This is not a son of God. This is God's own son, a manifestation of the divine presence of the Lord. Not metaphorically, like as a rock or as a refuge, not elementally in the form of a pillar of fire and smoke, but in person, as a human being, divinity incarnated in flesh and bone. Something surprising here, and I wonder if you even noticed, because I didn't at first. The first time I read this to prepare for this, I did not notice it. In all this talk about this son, the name of this son is not given in all these verses. Did you notice that? The name of this son is not given in all these verses. In fact, the name of this son will not be uttered until chapter 2, verse 9. This is because everyone knows who is being talked about here. Everyone knows who this son is. Everyone has heard. This son, the son of God, the son of man is Jesus Christ. Everyone knew his name. Everyone had heard about Jesus. But not everyone believed in who Jesus is. Not everyone believed in what Jesus had done for all the world. For the original audience of this letter, they were caught in the midst of a real challenge. Nostalgia for the past. Remember, these were Jewish Christians. Nostalgia for the past, for the days of that good old time religion was very, very tempting in the midst of the stress and disillusionment of their present. And it had caused them to embrace, many of them to embrace a smaller, more manageable, more adaptable version of the gospel. Rather than getting the message, many found themselves customizing their own version of the good news. And this is interesting because I would argue that that same temptation is very much alive and well for us today. Especially at this time of year where we are specifically encouraged and told each one of us to keep Christmas in our own way. Everyone at this time of year, everyone, everyone knows who's being talked about in many of those Christmas songs we sing. Everyone has heard by this Christmas, how many Christmases have we had from the beginning? Everyone has heard by this point that Jesus is the reason for the season. So if you have that ugly Christmas sweater with the lights that tells everybody, please don't wear it anymore. <laughs> everybody knows Jesus is the reason for the season. They've heard it. 
but many will not allow the message and the meaning of Christ's birth to penetrate their lives. Many, maybe even some of us in this room, are allowing the message and the meaning of Christ's birth to be drowned out by the news of the world. I mean, think about it. Talk about conflicting messages. So many who profess to believe in Jesus, to follow him. We'll sing together. We'll sing of peace on earth and goodwill to humanity, even at the same time as we continue to spew anger and hatred towards those whom we fear and whose views we oppose. We will whisper together excitedly, in awe. We will whisper of Jesus being born into poverty, starting life as a fugitive, even as with the same breath we will decry and curse the homeless who litter our streets and the refugees who seek sanctuary within our borders. But my friends, the true message of Christmas is in the midst of all the darkness and despair that marks our human existence. God came near as close as God could possibly get so that we could draw near to him and experience his light and his life. In a world of hatred and violence where many are excluded or treated unjustly, a world, frankly, that hasn't changed much in over 2,000 years. God comes to all people, not just the rich, but especially the poor. Not only for the haves, but most definitely for the have-nots. The Lord of all creation comes to us, not in power, but in poverty. Not with privilege, but in weakness. In vulnerability as a child. Because from the start, God in Christ seeks to teach us not to live for ourselves, but to give our lives for the least of these, regardless of economics, regardless of politics. For if anyone has no material, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? How can we claim to be keeping Christmas as Christ intends. Are we getting the message yet? Others of us will be seduced by something different. Others of us will be seduced to fuse the message and meaning of Christ's coming with the marketing and sales campaigns that lay claim to this season. I mean, come on, think about it. Again, talk about conflicting messages. We will tell ourselves, we will tell each other that Christmas doesn't come from a store. In fact, Christmas means so much more. We'll tell ourselves this while we just keep buying and consuming more than we need and more than we can afford to spend. We will talk proudly, excitedly of the joy of giving to others. Ah, the joy of giving to others. While at the same time, we will be judging our value, our worth to others through what they give or do not give to us. Beloved, if the version of Santa Claus we've crafted for our children, thanks to Coca-Cola and commercialism, is to be believed, if Christmas really is about whether we are naughty or nice, about reconciling the ledger of whether we are good or bad, then getting a lump of coal in our stocking is the least of our worries. We've got bigger problems if our lives are ultimately defined by what we earn by what we achieve, by what we accumulate, 
Because worldly reputation and success are fleeting. They are here today and gone tomorrow. And death makes no allowance for carry-on luggage. You can't take it with you. And the divine standard for righteousness, when we want to start talking about good and bad, the divine standard for righteousness is not graded on a curve. All, you, me, everyone, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And no amount of good behavior a couple of weeks before Christmas is going to change that. But the true message of Christmas was never about the measure of one's worth being based upon whatever we give or receive. Christmas is not about giving to others. It's about God giving to us. Our inestimable value is reflected and secured in the God who comes not to give us presents, but to give us his presence to not only be with us, but to be for us. Grace is what we are given at Christmas time. Grace. God graces us by speaking to us. God graces us by speaking to us. God graces us by speaking to us, not because we always speak kindly, respectfully, or appropriately to God, but God graces us by speaking to us because God desires to be in relationship with us. God graces us by doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, making things right, cleaning up what's wrong, bringing us together, enabling us to become our best selves, carrying us beyond death to life that is everlasting. None of this is within our reach. None of it. All of this is beyond our ability. Not just my ability, not just your ability, not just our ability, all our ability on our own. Decades upon decades upon centuries upon centuries of human history has proven this. On our own, we are hopeless. Hopeless. But the message of Christmas is that the small infant's hands that will later be nailed to a rugged wooden cross are the hands of hope and promise for all humankind. For they are the hands of God, lovingly reaching down to pick us up in the midst of the difficulties of this life. The hands that unrelentingly purpose, despite ourselves, to carry us home. Are we getting the message yet? Some of you this past year have already received messages. Messages that have certainly changed your life. You got the message. You got the message when the doctor said, there's nothing more we can do. You got the message. You got the message when your boss said, we're going to have to let you go. You got the message. You got the message from your spouse when he said or she said, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. You got the message. You got the message when that person, whoever he or she is, or maybe it's just the voice in your head said, you're not good enough. Why can't you be more like him? Why can't you be more like her? You're not welcome here. 
Your whole life is a failure. You are a failure. We've all gotten messages like these. Maybe not this year, maybe for many, many years, but we've all at some point gotten messages like these, and messages like these change our lives. But in the midst of all of life's betrayals and bitter messages, there is another far more important message we need to get. From the first piercing cry of a babe born in a manger all the way to the last gasping breath of an innocent man dying on a cross, God calls out to you. God calls out to us, declaring nothing, nothing in all creation can ever separate you from my love. Trust in me with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me and I will direct your paths. I will not leave you or forsake you. I am with you always to the very end of time. This is the message of Christmas. The greatest message ever proclaimed. And neither the skeptics doubt, the mockers scorn, the public's apathy, the crowd's ridicule, the executioner's sword, or the devil's lies have or can ever diminish its truth and its meaning. For this is no cheap talk. This is no empty promise because Jesus Christ did more than proclaim God's message. Beloved, Jesus is God's message. Jesus is God's message, delivered in person and repeated over and over and over and over and over again through the person of the Holy Spirit, the message that God is with us, that God is for us, that Christ is in us forever.